someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek talking about all the cybersecurity news of the past week and what you need to know to protect yourself, your family, and your business's security and privacy online. To connect to us, uh, visit our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and email Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. As always, we do take your questions uh, that we may answer on the air, give you some advice, what you want to know about cybersecurity. So we really do like that feedback. Uh, And certainly the same goes for Facebook, Twitter, however you wish to connect to us, go ahead and do so. Uh, broadcasting on two stations here, AM 820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM 10, 1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. And, of course, we have our podcast version of our show. So a lot of great content here for you this week. But I think, you know, we'll start out with the first big news uh, news of the week. I'm sure everybody's heard by now. Uh, starting early Tuesday morning, there was a large uh, cyber attack that started in Ukraine sprint el- spread elsewhere called Petya or not Petya, uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, ransomware. In reality, what the software would do was if somebody clicked on it, uh, got an email, got a malicious update or whatever, it would try to spread through an entire organization uh, using, one, the NSA exploit if machines are still vulnerable to it, but would also use uh, try to get the administrator credentials from the machine, try to log into everything that it can around it, and then infect this ransomware. The ransomware would in turn uh, reboot the computer, uh, encrypt the, the master boot table so the computer couldn't load or, or, or boot up, uh, and then say, hey, if you want your computer back, pay us $300 in Bitcoin. Uh, the reality is, is one, the email account that they required for this to work was disabled quickly. Uh, but it was clear uh, when we reverse engineered it, took a look at this ransomware, there really wasn't any decryption po- possible. Uh, it simply just uh, was made to look like ransomware, but really would shut down computers, lock people out of it. And it caused a great deal of disruption, especially in Ukraine, but in a lot of other countries, uh, including here in the United States. Um, DLA Piper, Merck Pharmaceuticals, Maersk, the global shipping company, uh, the manufacturer that makes Cadbury eggs got affected. So uh, if you like Cadbury eggs, uh, you know, you, this ransomware or this, uh, this malware attack uh, would disrupt you from uh, your sweet tooth. But really, it had the most impact in Ukraine, talking to some people out there. Credit card machines and transactions were unavailable, so you had to pay in cash for things that you wanted. But the ATMs were offline, too, and most of the cash registers run a form of Windows, so they were offline. So if you wanted to buy food, all you pretty much could do was take cash uh, to a street vendor if you had it. So very disruptive attack there uh, affected their banks, their governments, transportation, airports, so on and so forth. And interestingly enough, happened very close to Ukrainian Constitution Day. 
So I mentioned earlier, right, no real way to decrypt it, recover the machines. It uh, became clear yeah, about the, the end of the day on Tuesday that really we weren't talking about ransom. We weren't talking about crime. We were talking about a spread of something very intentional uh, that was sabotage uh, in essence, right? Uh, an attempt by an entity uh, that uh, what wanted to really uh, interfere with normal day-to-day -day operations and people just getting by in Ukraine. Imagine what that would look like here in the United States. You go to your grocery store, uh, go out to eat, wherever, uh, and you can't use your credit cards. Uh, you know, we're not quite a cashless society, but we're getting pretty close. Uh, transportation being disrupted, so on and so forth, right? It would be very impactful uh, if we had that kind of disruption there. Uh, as many of you know, at least those who pay attention to world affairs, there's really only a small number of nations that use Ukraine as a geopolitical chew toy, uh, and that list is about one uh, of Russia. Uh, certainly the Ukrainian Constitution Day and the correlation to that event certainly suggests that. Uh, but time will go on uh, and dictate how confident we are on that assessment. Uh, still kind of in the early days of now investigating, we've more or less responded to it. But in the past, if it was Russia, when they do these attacks on Ukraine, it is often a message to the United States. The, the Ukrainian citizens are have a degree of resilience uh, because these things happen to them often. Uh, they manage to get by uh, and make do with, with cash or other means uh, to carry about their, their day and their business and their lives. Uh, it's certainly impactful, but, but they get around it. Uh, this, there have been attacks on their power grid. I think we talked about that on this show a couple of weeks ago where uh, their power grid was attacked and there was power outages. Those were also attributed to the Russian government. So uh, the kind of geopolitical reality there is that Russia is sending us a message. Uh, precisely what the nature of that is is probably more for the State Department and diplomats uh, and so forth. Uh, but certainly we're, we're facing a lot of contention with Russia in Syria. Uh, they're still aggravated about sanctions, want to get a couple of diplomatic compounds that we closed, uh, that the Obama administration closed in the, uh, towards the end of his administration in response to some aggression on the Russians' part. So there's a lot of things there the Russian government wants. They don't feel that they're getting from the United States. Uh, and this seems to be a, a message. And it certainly captured the imagination of several other nation states who are not necessarily friendly to us in a potential mechanism to disrupt us, create some havoc in our day-to-day -day life uh, as a response or retaliation to something we're doing. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. So continuing on with the story, right? Big news did affect some U.S. companies. Uh, the infection mechanism was kind of easy I thought, or interesting. I thought that was a, a very interesting part of the story. The Ukrainian government requires businesses to use a very specific piece of software to pay taxes. So all businesses have it. And all multinational firms that have Ukrainian offices have it. So you would get the infection from there, uh, and it would start the process of spreading out through an entire organization, uh, stealing credentials, and then encrypting hard drives. So what would happen and why other firms were affected is that if you have a Ukrainian presence, you know, uh, your wide area network or VPN tunnels, the malware would spread through those tunnels uh, to elsewhere around the world and then keep spreading through an entire organization. Most of the impact was in Ukraine. 
Uh, interestingly enough, the second biggest country in terms of impact was Russia itself. Uh, they are less reticent for collateral damage, but they were highly impacted. Uh, there really is only a small handful of firms in the United States that, that were affected, uh, and if they got hit, they got hit hard. But I think we're seeing a new era in cybersecurity. We're used to a lot of criminal behavior, right? Ransomware to steal money, credit card fraud, uh, you know, various online scams and cyberbullying and so forth. Uh, this was very clearly an act of sabotage in a way that could be very disruptive and if, if it happened here. And certainly with the amount of devices that we attaching computers to and then plugging on the network, uh, we're getting a taste of what Internet of Things and all of these embedded devices uh, could do if they got infected and they got shut down. So I know with WannaCry a couple months ago, people shared uh, images of train station monitors and the like, you know, things that people forget about but really are computers on the back end. There is a lot of things that we have that are attached to computers. I mean, elevators, uh, for one, right? But medical devices, uh, your cars have a computer, if not several. So if these kind of attacks start proliferating, if if nation states or others decide that they really want to engage in acts of sabotage, we could see a widespread uh, and proliferation of this. We've had two disruptive cyber attacks of this sort in two months. Uh, prior to that, at least worms, uh, the kind of malware that spreads on its own, self-propagating. The last time we saw that was almost seven years ago. So uh, a lot of uh, dangerous stuff out there. We're going to dig more into that shortly. So stay tuned. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek, and we'll be right back after this short break. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You have tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, talking about uh, the cybersecurity news of the day and what you need to know to protect your security and privacy online and that of your family. Joining us is our digital partner, CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, uh, writer Chris Bing, who uh, has been following the Russia investigation hearings in Congress. Uh, some recent testimony talked about uh, Russian uh, attackers uh, going after some of our state election uh, authorities. So wanted to bring him on to talk about this. Uh, thank you for coming back on, Chris. Thanks for having me, John. So, yes, it's absolutely been a very interesting week in Washington. Yeah, it's well, it, it's an interesting week every week, it seems. It's just never a dull moment ever. And I hope we stop talking about election hacking for a little while, but we're still here. So um, let's uh, let's talk about it. Right. The Department of Homeland Security recently said uh, 21 uh, different states were targeted by Russian hackers. Uh, so what are you hearing? What, what exactly is DHS saying here? Right. So um, th this number is really sort of being confirmed. Uh, NBC News and a few other media outlets reported in December that the number of states that were targeted was around 20 or more than 20. And we finally got firm confirmation from DHS about that, that it's 21. Now, the question becomes, 
um, what does targeted mean and who was targeted exactly. And that is not something that DHS or the FBI was willing to discuss in an open hearing um, when members of DHS and FBI testified. So, you know, did that mean that election officials in these states received phishing emails um, did they visit a website where it was participants they could visit and they downloaded something malicious? It's not quite clear yet, but we do know it's 21 states, and it's quite possible it's even more than that. Bloomberg reported recently that the tally is closer to 35 that were targeted. But again, the language around targeted is, is pretty vague. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of, I saw this, my first question is like, anybody with an email address is targeted, you know, by Russian hackers, you know, that doesn't mean anything. That's just welcome to the Internet. Or is this, was this part of the overall influence operation? Were they actually targeting election authorities in an intelligent, defined way, uh, you know, with some purpose behind it or uh, what exactly that is? And it, that's kind of the big question. And it's surprising to me. Here we are eight months after the election. And people are being coy about what that is, considering people have been pretty public about the attribution and things to date with the DNC and some of the other investigations going on. And, you know, that actually sparked some some frustration during the hearing. So this was a hearing being done by the Senate Intelligence Committee. Yeah. Uh, Mark Warner is the top Democrat. And during one exchange that he had with Jeanette Manfra, who is the Undersecretary for Cybersecurity Communications at DHS, mm -hmm. she was one of the representatives who testified there, he basically said the same thing. He said, look, you guys aren't being transparent enough. Uh, thank you for telling us that it's 21 states, but we need to know more. The American public deserves to know more. And uh, they sort of just jumped around that and didn't really answer any more questions aside from the number that it's 21. Yeah. So... Like I said, that's kind of the concerning thing here. And for those tuning in, uh, you listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanak talking about uh, uh, some Russian hacking targeting the states. Um, the concerning thing is, right, you know, we're here, you know, the middle of 2017, off year, uh, you know, there may be a special election here or there. But by and large, we're not in the campaign season. If we're going to take the time to really tackle election security, now's the time. Uh, I know when we talked, uh, when I talked uh, with several other colleagues last year, you know, the summer into the fall, I mean, election authorities don't have a whole lot of time when the the election is upcoming. You're not going to get an election authority two weeks out to say, oh, OK, let's upgrade our, our, you know, our desktops and patch. They're just too stinking busy. Right now is the time to deal with this problem. And there's nothing to deal with if there is no real content. There's no uh, there's no transparency, as you said. What we know at this point is that DHS is supposedly working on guidelines, a framework by which states will monitor uh, state election systems, the computers of local election officials, that they will basically look at voluntarily. And, and that's something that DHS is looking and building on and hopes to provide mm -hmm. literature on in the future. Uh, the full content of that, we don't know. I guess it's somewhat reassuring that the federal government realizes this is an issue and is at least trying to provide voluntary information to states to follow. But at the end of the day, um, this, gets back, this gets back to the question of how much influence do you want the federal government to have on local election processes mm -hmm. that have long been run by, you know, 
underfunded um, local government officials. I mean, no. you know, the, the, the structure is currently not conducive for cybersecurity. That's sort of the simple fact. Well, no, I, I think that's 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 exactly right. We have 8,000 independent election jurisdictions, all that have their own authority to choose their vendors. They have a lot of latitude in their processes. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, you, 18, you're entitled to vote, no poll taxes, stuff like that. But beyond that, where the polling places are, you know, which electronic vendor to use for poll books, the electronic poll books, uh, they've got a whole huge uh, latitude with which to operate, which really has us, you know, unique. Uh, I was in uh, the UK for the British elections and kind of talking through election influence uh, and hacking kind of stuff. And they're like, there's one authority that handles the entire elections for the United Kingdom. I mean, there's local offices and stuff like that, but it is a national thing here in the United States. You know, it's not even a state thing. You know, it is it is a hyper local thing. I, right. I like using Illinois as an example. We have 110 election jurisdictions. All 102 counties are their own jurisdiction. Seven cities are their own jurisdiction. And then we have one part of one city, which is its own election jurisdiction. And on top of all of this, you know, even you can make the argument that the system is diversified. There's a number of different machines and programs that are running. There's only like 18 election software vendors that yeah. service the United States. And of those 18, like four do business with the majority of states. So if you were really trying to make a concerted effort and you were a nation state with significant resources to invest in finding vulnerabilities in some of these systems, at the end of the day, you only got to look at about four to six software programs to really break down. And all of those are running on Windows computers. The, the system right now has issues. Um, it's good that it's being recognized, but at the same time, obviously, we would like a little bit more transparency from the federal government. No, I think that that's very true, and, and certainly there are issues between the federal government and some of the states. I know Georgia, in particular, refused DHS's help and then accused DHS of uh, trying to hack their network or doing scanning anyway. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there's the elections are highly political, and so is election administration. So it's certainly uh, an obstacle to getting things done. So uh, certainly keep on top of this story as it develops. Uh, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Chris Bing uh, from our digital partner, CyberScoop, at CyberScoop.com. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. All right. That brings us to the end of our segment. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We'll be back with more right after this break. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. Bambanek's back with the latest on cybersecurity. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Previous segment, 
Great interview with cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Go ahead, check them out online. A lot of great information and news on a wide variety of topics, more than we can cover here in this hour, but certainly a lot of great information, uh, certainly uh, out of D.C. uh, and uh, the goings on there. So uh, definitely go check that out. I did want to go back to uh, the Pecha ransomware, uh, specifically talking about how you can protect yourself from these kind of threats. Uh, and what you can do to protect your small business. You know, many big businesses and enterprises were impacted by this, uh, and they've got security teams, lots of money, spending hundreds of thousands if millions of dollars on security software and hardware. Uh, that's certainly not available to consumers and many small, even medium-sized businesses. So uh, some lessons learned, at least for what we know so far this week, of what you could protect against uh, or how you could protect yourself against these kind of threats. The first is to always update your machine, right? One of the ways that this spread was an NSA exploit that was patched in March. Uh, this is now uh, well past March. So always apply those updates. Always try to run the latest version of an operating system. The updates include a lot of security updates, a lot of uh, patching of vulnerabilities. Once those patches are released... There's lots of criminal groups online and others who spend time reverse engineering them to figure out exactly what the vulnerability is, and then they turn around and write exploits for it. So even if the criminals don't have access to an NSA tool or whatever, the criminals will take the time and effort to figure it out. And then usually, uh, you know, the patch window for Microsoft is patch Tuesday, the second Tuesday of the month. By Thursday or Friday, we start seeing attacks against things that were... uh, patched and resolved that previous Tuesday. So you're really talking 48, 72 hours tops uh, where you start seeing uh, commodity criminal attacks, uh, the things you kind of see in your email and like. So always update your machine. If you're a Windows user, update to Windows 10. Uh, That latest ransomware attack, Petya, or not Petya, depending on who you talk to, uh, would not really affect Windows 10 if it had secure boot installed. Uh, Windows 10 and Microsoft specifically spent a lot of time and effort making Windows 10 a really secure operating system. Uh, The upgrade's free, so I encourage anyone who can uh, to get the latest version of, uh, of Windows that can get on the Windows 10 as soon as possible. For your small business, medium business, uh, you may be stuck on Windows 7 or 8 a while. One of the problems we have, uh, and I know you see this in the media, hey, there was a patch out there, or if you installed Windows 10, you'd be okay, and, you know, my bank or whoever couldn't, uh, was running Windows 7, you know, are you being negligent? There's a lot of uh, embedded devices out there, a lot of applications out there that still require older versions of Windows to work. Uh, And this is a big problem of which I don't have a solution, except that if you're one of those people who are in business uh, or work for a company that's stuck using Windows 7 or Windows 8 because some vendor won't provide you an update, you really need to put the screws to them and hard. You're buying software or services from them, and they're forcing you to run insecure versions of an operating system uh, because they're just not willing to provide you the right customer service. Uh, It's a huge issue. Almost every company I interact with, large or small, struggles with this very much problem. And we really need to put a lot of pushback there. And the more these vendors hear about it, not just from people like me, but people like you uh, or your boss or the, the president or CEO or manager of your company and say, you really need to update this 
uh, the better off we are, the more likely they're going to do it because these kind of damaging sabotage attacks aren't going to diminish in frequency. They're going to be happening more and more often, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, and certainly if the U.S. retaliates against Russia for the Lolita cyber attack, uh, there may be more of it. Um, the European Union signed an agreement this past week. The 28 nations would agree to defend an, each other in cyber attacks, in essence, uh, you know, a equivalent of Article 5 in NATO, a cyber attack against one is a cyber attack against all. So you're going to start seeing these tit for tat. And really, the people who suffer in these kind of cybersecurity attacks uh, isn't the government. It isn't the military. It's going to be us who can't use our credit cards or go to the grocery store or our lights are out, so on and so forth. So the best way that we can have influence on it, right? We can't really affect foreign policy, but we can affect the people we do business with and say, you need to get on this latest version of Windows. You need to figure out a way to support it and help us be safe. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Going more, based on this latest ransomware attack, how can you protect yourself online besides going to Windows 10? Right. Uh, some of the ways that this spread uh, in organizations is that it would try to steal uh, administrator credentials. And the idea is if you've got an office of 20 workstations all running Windows 7 or Windows 8, odds are they all have the local administrator account. Odds are they all have the same password. So if you can steal this from one computer, you have access to all of them. Right. So this goes back to something I know I've talked about uh, of, of password management using one password, last pass. Uh, any number of them are out there to create unique passwords uh, for all the accounts you use. Right. If you've got a webmail account and a bank account, a bank account and five credit card accounts and a mortgage account, creating a unique password from all of that, manage it in last pass or one password. Do the same for your small business uh, or medium sized business. Get a password manager. All of those have enterprise versions so that. If somehow an attacker compromises the administrator password on one machine, gets administrator access, they can't use that to leverage access throughout the entire environment. Uh, it's, it's fairly easy to use. Uh, you know, you can get an app on your phone so you can see it on your phone to type it in, whatever. Uh, but certainly ask, you know, your boss, your IT shop, what are we doing to manage passwords? Because I have to tell you, you know, there's a lot of imagery out there of hacking of people, you know, typing at keyboards, reaching over the Internet, hacking webcams and the like. But a lot of it comes down to just poor password management. If the account for your fantasy football site, uh, your username and password is the same as your username and your password for your Gmail account and your bank account. Right. I can compromise. I don't have to compromise Gmail. I just have to compromise some fantasy football site and I can get access to all of your stuff. That's how criminals operate. They operate on you making mistakes or tricking you to make mistakes. So really important, good, strong password management uh, of of, uh, of all of the administrator accounts. Um, if you're at home, you're a consumer. Anytime you open a message, you open an attachment, an office doc, a PDF, whatever, and you get that pop-up that says, hey, this requires administrative privileges to do this. Do you really want to do that? Be very wary. Most things, viewing office documents or whatever, do not require administrative privileges. I mean, installing software does, but if you're not expecting to see that pop-up when you're opening up an Excel document that you got an email or a PDF or whatever, likely that's because there's a macro or something embedded in that program and that document that's trying to run things on your computer. That is a sign for you to say, hey, you know what? Something's not right here. Take a step back. Cancel out of it. It's your last 
your last stop before getting to the bad place. So uh, pay attention to that on your consumer PCs because uh, it is a sign it was built in as one last defense to a user. You know, basically, hey, are you sure you really want to do this? I mean, you own the computer. No one's going to tell you no, but it's a warning that says if you're not expecting this, uh, then you probably need to stop, right? It's a warning to give you one last chance and one last quick bit of advice Always avoid plugging desktops, these embedded devices, webcams, whatever, directly to the Internet. Always have them find a firewall or a router so that they can't be reached out and touched from across the Internet. You really get some great protection just with that step. So always avoid putting things with direct network access unless they really need to talk to the entire Internet, like a mail server or a web server. So definitely uh, make sure both at home and your office that you're doing that as well. You'll get some really great protection out of that step. So a lot of things you can do out there to protect yourself, right? Use a password manager. Get one in your in your office. Get on Windows 10. If you're required to use some software for work, make sure whoever provides that software is told they need to get on Windows 10 and get their act together too. So we're going to take a quick break right here, uh, change gears a little bit again. So you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We've got some great cybersecurity news coming up right after this, so stay tuned for more. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Bambanek's back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, joining us up next is Mike Dougherty, senior writer for Cyber Defense Magazine, talking about uh, the tech transformation uh, of the federal government in the White House. Also author of the book, The Devil Inside the Beltway, which you can find on Amazon or thedevilinsidethebeltway.com. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Oh, good to be here, sir. So uh, tell us briefly, kind of, why is it, uh, uh, you know, what's going on here? What is Trump trying to do when we're talking about transformation of, of technology in the federal government? Well, you know, you have a businessman who has run, uh, you know, large organization, and so he's got that different perspective. And it is very, very clear and obvious that uh, our, our, our government is incredibly bureaucratic, and slow moving. And that means we're behind in tech. And that means we're, as a matter of national security and commercial security, uh, we're vulnerable. So uh, he's got a different mindset, which is much more, you know, execute uh, and quickly. And so, and then you always surround yourself with people that know more than you do. So in this instance, you would say he's, he's really bringing these people in to really roll their sleeves up and get going, not as a photo op. And, uh, and, and there was some, um, from what I've heard, some shock, pleasantly surprised uh, uh, response of that meeting after the fact by, by some of the attendees. Uh, you're not going to turn down an invitation to go, but it's pretty clear uh, those were not the majority of people that voted for him. <laughs> so sure. it was a pretty interesting situation. Well, yeah, no, I think it's kind of, you know, not exactly a hidden secret as far as the high-tech firms that we're all used to. Uh, they tend to be more left than right, for instance. Um, you know, and uh, and I know a few had some uh, difficulties and protests that they were going in the first place. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about uh, transformation and some of these things, you know, I recall, you know, recent event uh, that uh, President Trump 
removed the requirement that federal agencies had to report their readiness for Y2K, you know, for clocks going from 1999 to the year 2000, 17 years after the fact. I mean, that's how bureaucratic we are. We're still reporting on events uh, that were 17 and a half years ago that have come and gone. Right. And wasn't that a fiasco that never happened? That cost how much money? And it, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is what probably drives Trump crazy. It would drive me crazy is being a former CEO myself. I, you know, it's just, you're amazed uh, how you keep anything operating when there's no accountability for people. One of the biggest weaknesses of the U.S. government is the actual technical skill of people they have in certain positions. They, they really aren't trained for what they should be doing. They mm-hmm. certainly are not technology trained, and then you can't hold them accountable. So, you know, the Office of Personal Management is a prime example, one of the worst sources of data, the biggest violations of national security. They were warned several times by the press government to, to tighten the ship up. They didn't type it up, tighten up. Nothing happened to anybody. There was such an outcry in the, in, the, in the public and with the media that they got rid of the person at the top, but that was just window dressing. Nothing really changes. And when you have an atmosphere of mm-hmm. people not being held accountable for gargantuan errors, you get more bad bad business and bad practice. Well, I, I think we can point to a lot of examples of that, right? Edward Snowden walked out with tons of data, handed it to WikiLeaks, is now in exile in Russia. Nobody got fired that he stole that much information. Prior to that, uh, Chelsea Manning steals a bunch of information, burning it onto a CD labeled, what was it, Lady Gaga or something? Uh, it right. walks out of a military base. Nobody gets fired. We've got the, uh, the, the equation group exploits, all these major leaks from the intelligence community, people their job is to keep secrets that i mean that's the point uh and nobody gets fired for these great huge data lapses uh that you know i don't know i'll take my government's word that they were huge risks that endangered the lives of servicemen and undercover spies uh and nobody's head rolls over these egregious breakdowns uh of security or technology well and isn't it amazing it just happened with this young girl last name winner I mean, you look at the vitriol of which she she talked against the government and the president and the terrible things she said. How did she get a security clearance? This is what this is what really builds a, a concern about the many back doors we have that make it way too easy for our enemies to get in. I mean, there's many people around the country or the world that have made it very clear that we're target number one for them. No. So uh, this, this is a concern. No, no, absolutely right. So you know, uh, you know, you said you heard some great things coming out of this uh, this talk of transformation. You know, what do you think? You know, the government should be doing. You know, what's uh, what's a couple things they could do today that are just obvious, low hanging fruit, right? And uh, you know, if if not preparing for Y two K seventeen and a half years ago, uh, is there's got to be more than that. What are what are a couple of things still going on uh, that came out of this meeting that you know th- that could be addressed relatively quickly in your mind? Well, I don't know if there is anything honestly that can be relatively quickly except to get them to be cooperative in the government and assist. Uh, and I, I don't. That's the problem. I mean, you can't move the Titanic around on a dime in three seconds. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have to understand this government bureaucracy has been building like this since 1914. It has gone on and on and on, and when you're that large and cumbersome, there within lies the problem. We have to break it down in parts. And it's a great first step to truly understand and bring in private enterprise. Because you want to name something big that the government invented? You know, we need these innovators to come in 
and and take over. And you know, if these guys care about the government so much and they've been so politically active, here's their opportunity to really come in and do something. So I think that you know that's the biggest change. But I I I couldn't think of something that could be done quickly because. It's, it's, the infrastructure is too huge. I mean, people are so afraid of being made to change right now. That's why I think they're attacking him so viciously. The Washington establishment very terrified of the change, and they fight back hard. Well, it, it, certainly some of the most wealthy counties in the nation are around the Beltway, right? You know, people are making money, right? You know, And we talk about this Y2K reporting requirement. There's some guy probably graduated college in the 90s, and this was his job, and this has been his 20-year career. And you know, now he's wondering what to do with himself because wh- what do you do if, if you, you're, it's 2017 and your entire career has been processing Y2K reports? Uh, you know, but there's a lot of duplication and you, and you see it at every every level of government and just maddening technology uh, of just simple stuff. I mean, not even federal. And, government. and their excuses, their excuses. Oh, but we're creating jobs. I mean, we will create a lot of jobs with innovation. There'll be better jobs. So, you know, and, and, and we won't create jobs that are going to leave us vulnerable to to getting our head removed uh, technologically or through well, cyber warfare. Well, right. I, and I want I think the Department of Education, the student loan services, they still require Social Security number for for your login. Right. You know, basic cybersecurity tip number one. Right. Don't put in your Social Security number uh, and don't use it as a username. And, and we've got a federal agency still doing that. It's it, and it's I don't know. That's probably one of. 5,000 examples that leaves our head scratching, but that level of comfort and protection for yourself as an employee, uh, there's a culture of protection so that when someone comes in and wants to change that, that person can be isolated and attacked and and, and sort of iced out. Uh, And when you can't, you can't ice out Donald Trump, but you can ice out a lot of the people he appoints, and you can throw a lot of problems in the way before people can get appointed. So this is the big alligator wrestle of our time here. And, um, you know, the enemy really shouldn't be us, but in a lot of ways it is. No, I think you actually got a point there. And, uh, you know, I know uh, uh, Trump, for his part, is kind of a technological Luddite. You you would have thought some of this would have happened under President Obama, who is hailed as kind of the the first tech-savvy president, Uh, you know, but here we are. Yeah, because that infrastructure, I mean, tech-savvy for him to win, uh, but not tech-savvy for him to reduce or streamline or build the government efficiently. See, when people put, you know, people don't understand that if you don't keep progress going, then you'll, you'll meet obsolescence, mm-hmm. not stability. And so Obama protected all that, but then the best example right now, all these people that are screaming about the minimum wage being so low and put the four past, the four fast food workers, and now we're going to have these robots out there flipping burgers and there will be no fast food workers. Yeah, so, yeah, you, you know, we have, point. you can't, stop it but you can evolve to it and that's education no i think you make a great point uh you know we're kind of running out of time thank you mike uh for joining us uh senior writer for cyber defense magazine author of the devil inside the beltway you can find on amazon or the devil inside the beltway.com thank you for joining us today mike hey great talking to you have a good day that brings us to the end of our show today. Hope you enjoyed listening. If you'd like to connect with us, visit our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, at Facebook and Twitter, at CybersecRadio, or my personal Twitter account, at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. 
Uh, you can email us, J-O-H-N-B-A-N-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com, for questions you want to hear us address on the air. Uh, again, thanks to our digital partner, cyberscoop.com, has great cybersecurity news to keep you informed throughout the week, and to our radio affiliates, AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, potentially be a sponsor of the show, uh, drop us an email, connect with us online to get out your cybersecurity or IT service. Thank you for tuning into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and catch you next week at the same time.